In today's episode, we will cover the unsolved disappearance of Mormon mother Susan Powell, a case made wildly popular due to her own husband's suspicious behavior. We'll dive into the lives and family of Susan and her husband Josh to understand better what shaped them into the people that they were. More importantly, we're going to try to answer the ultimate question. Was Josh responsible for Susan's disappearance and murder? Welcome to the It Gets Worse podcast. I'm Carissa. And I'm Anthony. And we'll be your host today. And every time you listen to this, we'll be your host. Every time. Thanks so much for joining us. As you may know by now, we are covering the Susan Powell case today. Um, let me know if you like that little intro in the beginning before our music. I want to try something new out. So you kind of understand what the hell we're talking about before we start rambling because... I think we should do some like icebreakers before we get into it. And so if you remember being in school and having to introduce yourself to the class and tell them like your favorite thing to do during summer vacation and how horrible that was, well, we're going to do that, except it's going to be kind of not so horrible. Yeah, it's not going <laughs> to give us as much anxiety because no. we're choosing to do it. Yeah. Like, hey. And we talk mostly about other people in this podcast and it'll just give us a few minutes to let you guys kind of get to know us even though we're really not that interesting but (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we're just gonna kind of make it personal um i just wanted to tell you guys that the new shane dawson series comes out soon it comes out on october 1st and i was so excited when i saw the trailer today if you haven't seen the trailer go watch it it's, I think it's going to be called The Beautiful World of Jeffree Star. So he's partnering with him on it, which I love Jeffree Star. So it's it's hard not to love anything that he produces, honestly. The last series he did involved Chuck E. Cheese pizza. So if you haven't seen that one, please go watch it. We cannot drive by a Chuck E. Cheese anymore without Anthony being like, <laughs> say something about their pizza. But, um, yeah... <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese sucks. (laughs) I've only had like one. I think I had one birthday there. Have you? I haven't like personally had one there, but I'm pretty sure I've gone there like once for someone else's birthday party. Yeah, I think I did have a birthday there. I don't remember it, but I know that I have pictures and they're chilling. (laughs) (laughs) They're really creepy. And like think like late 90s Chuck E. Cheese costumes like no, yeah. they're probably like all um that electronic like now costco disposable camera oh quality Kodak. yeah <laughs> for sure um so anyways i just thought we'd kind of tell you guys a little updates about us and our lives one being that this podcast is two weeks late and i'm really sorry we got just really busy with life so i guess i'm not sorry because we had a birthday party for our now one-year-old daughter, which was fun. Crazy. And it's crazy. Can't believe it. And then last weekend, what did we do? Oh my, my god, that was like four days ago. Oh yeah, Anthony's grandma got married. And the next day was my mom's birthday and my great aunt um, 
rappelled down the top of the adobe building in san jose so if you don't know how tall it is i don't either but it's pretty tall <laughs> um it was really cool actually uh she was one of the oldest people to do it but she was so good so proud of her and if she's listening right now sharon you did such a good job we love you um what's new with you nothing at all i've been playing a ton of overwatch for my brother we've been climbing doing good i looked at my stats today i'm like i rank 174 on this character that i really like to play widowmaker this so, is foreign to me but right. this is a good thing yeah i'm number 174 on out of Xbox. what i don't know there's a lot of people that play the game though probably like, oh like ones being the highest yeah, like that's I'm really ranked cool. 174, yeah. Out of like so. everyone that plays it. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, that's kind of so. impressive. Well, yeah, that character. So if I had to guess, probably like out of like a couple thousand people. That's pretty cool though. But, yeah, that's what I got going on. Yeah. So. What's your um video game Instagram? Oh, oh, my video game Instagram is Barry in the Cut TTV. TTV is in Victor. Yes. Right. Yeah. Check it out. I upload every now and then. Yeah, if you like to play Overwatch or watch Overwatch like Anthony does for hours. It's so funny because I'm like, how do you watch this? But literally I watch people put makeup on yeah. or I watch people. <laughs> what else do I watch? People tell true crime stories. Here we go. Or just random life stuff. Yeah. Here's the house that I bought. So true. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, whatever. Um, it's just like how kids watch other kids play v- play with toys now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's true. We just sit there and watch Presley dance all day. And it's, oh, yeah. That's <laughs> fun, though, because she's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Follow the gaming account. I post there every now and then. Um, I did try out the new Call of Duty beta. It was actually fun, so I might pick that up. So it'll be... It won't be as overly saturated with just Overwatch. It could be something new. But. Yeah, so if you understand anything of what he just said, you should go follow him. <laughs> <laughs> just follow me just because. Yeah, just do it. Just because. I need some clout. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Because this case is insane. I'm ready. I you, think. I mean, I think you got a little taste of it versus, like, compared to what I have shared with you and, like, a little bit of the podcast I was listening to. But, oh, my God. Yeah, I cut the tail This document it, so. that I have printed here is nine freaking pages. Okay, are we ready? Did you abandon her family to write I it? did. I left them. For five days. It was like three hours. Felt like five days. I know, you missed me. All right, let's get into it. So, to better understand the unsolved disappearance of Susan Powell, we need to go back to the beginning. Susan Cox was born October 16th, 1981 to Judy and Chuck Cox. She was one of four girls and was raised in the LDS Church. The LDS Church is the Church of Latter-day Saints, so that is Mormon faith, if you don't know. Her parents encouraged their daughters to learn about God and their faith, and so that's what they grew to know all their lives. Susan was a very active child. She played volleyball, basketball, softball, all for the church teams. She also loved animals and at one point was caring for a bunch of little parakeet type birds, I guess, with her sister Denise. I guess they got like one boy and one girl on accident and then they had like 30 parakeets. (laughs) But she was like really good at taking care of them and then she ended up like giving them away or Mm -hmm. doing something. She was responsible though. That's what Denise said. 
all anyone ever said about her is that she was beautiful and compassionate. She was just the girl next door, outgoing. In minutes, you could go from being a stranger to having a full-on conversation with Susan. Being raised in the LDS church meant that she was raised with certain values. Those were to get married, have children, and be a productive member of society, and to put God first always. Her faith remained the center of her world until a very different Josh Powell came along. Now, Josh was raised in a very different environment. And hold on, because this is going to be much longer than Susan's intro. It's crazy. But this is very important to understand the dynamic of where Josh came from and what makes him him. Josh Powell was born on January 20th, 1976. He was the second of five children to Steve and Terry Powell in Spokane, Washington. The family was heavily involved in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, and Josh was baptized, but soon after his father, Steve secretly denounced the church while his mother was a devout Mormon. So his dad was like, yeah, F the church. Okay? All right. Behind his mom's back. And this carried over to his sons. He would tell his sons as they got a little bit older, not much older, um, in their adolescence that the Book of Mormon was evil and it was fake. Mm-hmm. And and he really undermined all of the things that their mom, Terry, worked so hard to integrate into their yeah. lives. Because you and I are not religious. Mm-hmm. However, we both recognize some great things that come out of religion Mm -hmm. for people. And so this was something that she was, you know, this is important to her and she has five kids. Yeah. God, she needs some faith. Like that's crazy. So she's just trying to create, um, a happy home and one that believes in God and that follows the Mormon teachings. And Steve was just not about it. Josh showed great intelligence in Franklin Elementary School. He learned curriculum like long division years before he should have been taught. So he caught on really fast to stuff like this. Although his family would still describe him as a hands-on learner versus a bookworm. In his fifth grade year, turmoil began in his parents' marriage. And this started because Terry was eight months pregnant with his youngest sibling And she found a secret journal of Steve's, and in it was details of her husband's two-year-long obsession with another man's wife. Terry confronted Steve about the journal, and he was pretty whatever about it. He didn't seem sorry, and instead told her that if this other woman's husband were to die, he'd be willing to take her in as a plural wife and raise her children. Okay, so... This woman does not know he's obsessed with her. It's Mm -hmm. not like she was like, if my husband dies, I'll raise my... He's just like, yep, I'll just take over. Like, what the hell? Just to clarify, if anyone is not up to date, the LDS church does not believe in polygamous marriages anymore. That's not something that's still practiced. It was at one point, okay, like... That was a thing where men would marry multiple wives. And the belief was that each wife that he married would be with him in heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's the Mormon uh, faith. If I'm correct me if I'm wrong, um, but do it nicely. <laughs> <laughs> in the Mormon faith, when you marry someone, that's 
someone you're married to for eternity. So after death, you're with that person. And that's why marriage is so serious and taken, you know, taken so seriously, which it it really should be anyways. But that's why they take Mm -hmm. it so seriously. That's their belief. Um, So although the LDS church no longer believed in polygamous relationships, um, Steve still had this wild fantasy Terry was so scared she actually believed that Steve might go so far as to make sure something happened to the said husband so he could live out his fantasies with this woman and her. Steve Powell was telling his three sons about how quote-unquote dangerous the Mormon church was, and he was spreading his own propaganda behind his wife's back. Steve told his sons from a very young age that humans were just animals that should have sex with whoever whenever they wanted. From a very young age... This went completely against what the LDS church teaches, though, and probably most sane parents. Yeah, I think everybody. Yeah. Steve also kept pornography in the house. This was something that the church did not allow. But worst of all, he kept a diary of how he was attracted to his oldest daughter, Jennifer. Wow. His daughter. Yeah. He often wrote about how in the morning, while at the breakfast table, she would come downstairs in a t-shirt and panties by the way, panties is the worst word ever. Uh, fight me. That's I can't yeah, say it weird. without cringing. It's weird. Steve said seeing Jennifer with underwear on would drive him nuts. Which drives me disgusto barfo. <laughs> Steve tried to convince his children that the Book of Mormon was fake. And when Terry found out, she was livid. She moved out for some time, but ended up moving back. Um, if you don't know, it's divorce is not necessarily a popular option in the Mormon faith. They're taught not to seek divorce unless there is absolutely no other option. The family unit is extremely important in Mormon teachings, and so it's stressed to kind of work everything out, yeah. you know, for the family. Um, but... Steve was not, Steve was not a man who didn't pick up his socks Mm -hmm. that were dirty on the floor. Steve was a man that was lusting after their own daughter and obsessing over other people's wives. It became obvious that Steve's ideas and his actions directly influenced his son's actions. When Josh was young, Terry once walked in on Josh and one of his other brothers, quote unquote, examining their younger sister, Alina inappropriate. Terry is trying hard to show her kids the way of faith through the church and her beliefs, but all while she's doing that, Steve is coming up behind her and really just corrupting it all. While growing up, Josh found it difficult to connect with girls. He was said to be self-confident and very intelligent, but he often came off too strong as I would describe it. There are a few instances where he's romantically interested in a girl the feeling is not mutual and the girl will gently reject him, but he completely ignores it. So there was this girl he went to church with and they were both in high school, but she was about to graduate. She was a senior and I think he was a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And so she is thinking about, or she's getting ready to go yeah. to college and he's interested in her. And even though she's not interested in him like that, she uses the excuse as she's going off to college as a reason why she can't pursue a relationship with him and dating in the mormon faith is obviously not as casual as dating when you're like 19 you know regularly it's kind of it's called courting a lot of the times and it's taken very seriously Mm -hmm. because dating 
is always leading to marriage, right? Yeah. Is like the that's the hope. So he's interested in this girl. She brushes him off a few times. Uh, eventually goes to school. He still writes to her all the time. He writes these long letters to her. And finally she says, okay, dude, this is, I'm not interested. This is not a thing. We are not together. I do not like you like that. I think you're a nice guy, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. And he's heartbroken and he spreads like lies about her. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know how many people were listening to him. He was always kind of the outcast at school, but He was not happy. And then it didn't take him long before he switched and focused in on another girl. And it was just kind of that same thing over and over. He wasn't really the type of guy, even as a young guy, that a lot of girls were interested in. He just kind of seemed creepy and weird. Yeah, which he was. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he would keep calling people, these girls that would reject him. He would write a lot of them letters and would eventually become jealous when they would pursue someone else. And it was like, in his mind, he was the best choice and any other choice was the wrong one. It's incredibly narcissistic in my opinion. Also how annoying to be one of those girls and him not respecting that the first boundary of just being like, I'm not interested. That's a real like easy boundary. I feel like everyone needs to just get to that point and he's, he's like nope it's okay i'll just keep writing you letters for like five years but in 2000 josh and susan finally meet at a mixer for church singles at the time susan was 19 and josh was 24 they quickly bonded over their love of animals josh apparently told her he had a pet parrot and the rest is history she loves birds which is an odd thing to bond over but you know i think it was innocent Susan fell for Josh fast. She was 19, had never experienced real romance until Josh came along. He was a hopeless romantic. Though he often crossed boundaries with girls before Susan, she liked his charm. Susan was crazy for Josh, though friends of the couple would later say they were total opposites. Josh was loud. He liked to brag a lot. He was obsessive and didn't care about others' opinions. While Susan was kind and compassionate with a strong faith. Everything seemed great, they were in love, and they were soon married after only eight months. The pair got married in April 2001 in a Mormon temple in Oregon. Susan and Josh were both just starting out when they got married, so in an attempt to save money, they moved in with Steve Powell, Josh's creepy-ass dad. Okay. It's in this time that Steve becomes obsessed with Susan, his new daughter-in-law. Didn't see that coming, right? (laughs) Steve starts spending extra time with her when he drops her off and picks her up from work. So she doesn't have a car yet. So he's helping her out. He's taking her to and from work. But she doesn't know that while she walks to and from into work from the car, he's secretly recording her on videos he'd later masturbate to. Yeah, fucking weird. Sorry. I know that escalated, but you didn't come here for a bedtime story. So in these videos, he'd zoom in on her body and often add his own commentary. One that's very popular is, oh, I worship her. Like, how fucking weird. Yeah. Steve becomes increasingly more inappropriate with Susan, but she doesn't like confrontation. So for a long time, she doesn't pay him any attention. Susan at the time is also going through a cosmetology program. And at one point she was learning body waxing. So from experience, 
in cosmetology school, a lot of your first times doing something is on either your mannequin or your classmate because these are services you're eventually going to do on real people and they don't just throw you out there like good luck go wax janet's back like (laughs) (laughs) no they're gonna be like pair up and wax each other's legs and that's what happened at this certain time in susan's class so she was learning waxing she paired up with the classmate and they each had to wax each other's legs to learn the concept totally normal this is not weird i know some people that are they don't like touching other people i know that sounds weird it is completely normal in cosmetology school so later that day after her waxing waxing practice at school and after her fresh leg wax from her classmate she was making conversation with steve about her day she was telling him what she learned that day and seemed so excited about school she was having so much fun and she just said oh my god my legs are so smooth from today feel And Steve rubbed her legs. Steve later wrote in his journal that she asked for him to rub her legs because she wanted him. That Susan was teasing him and she knew it. But let's be clear. It wasn't a hey, it wasn't a sexy hey, rub my legs later. No, it was like she was talking to any other family member or friend because that's what Steve is. He's just a family member. Yeah. I know it sounds weird, but it is. I mean, like, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't either. I would never go to your dad and be yeah, like, oh my god, my legs are... Saying. Do you like, know what yeah. I mean? But I think it sounds... But he definitely like, took it over the top. Oh, totally. I think it was a... Let me just... You know, I want to tell someone about my day. Yeah. And maybe he was the only one there. And she was just like, yeah, look. This is what it looks like when you get a leg wax. Mm-hmm. Like, he's never going to know unless he gets his own. So I don't... I really think it was innocent on her part. But of course, he talked yeah. about it for freaking years. Okay? He would not let it go. So, Steve goes on for basically the whole two years they live with him, writing about Susan in his journals, obsessing over her, until one day when he picks her up from work, he confesses his love to her, but not at all expecting to be rejected by Susan. At first, she was confused and quickly tried to change the subject, Mm -hmm. but Steve just kept coming back to it. After she got home, she told Josh, and he was kind of whatever about it. He was just like, yeah, it's just my dad. She's like, no, your dad is a freaking creepo. And he's like, yeah, it's just my dad. Like, what? That just makes me think that he's conditioned. He's just totally totally used to it, and he's totally okay with it. He, like, basically grew up around that, like. Uh, Well, I think I forgot to mention that Josh's parents... Uh, Terry and Steve, they, you know, their turmoil began when Josh was about 10 years old in fifth grade, but they did not divorce until he was 16. So for six years, there was crazy stuff going on. And then after they did divorce, I'm sorry, I'm backtracking, but I think this is, I think this is important to mention. And I think saying this will help you better understand Josh's perspective in what I'm about to tell you later. But after they split up, Steve made sure he got the kids. I think the mom was granted the oldest daughter, Jennifer, Mm -hmm. probably because of the, you know, pervy stuff he was talking about her. Um, I'm sure she could probably tell there was something weird going Mm -hmm. on. But he got the rest of the kids, which obviously that was not up to her. You know, she didn't want him to have the kids, but that's the way it worked out. So finally, Susan convinces Josh, we need to go. This is it. And he finally is like, okay, sure, honey, he agrees. Cool. 
But Steve Powell did not stop, even though they moved all the way to Utah. He wrote hundreds of journal entries about Susan, the lust he had for her. He'd write about his fantasy of running away with her and even wrote creepy poems about her. He also wrote many songs and I'll read part of one of his songs here. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to read it. (laughs) For the moment I begin to smell the perfume in your hair and caress you everywhere, I'm missing you. I can love you in a secret way. I can love you each and every day. There is nothing I can't see. There is nothing you can't be. It's not perfect, but I'm missing you. Barf. Yeah. Yeah, barf. There's nothing I can't see. Ew. Okay. He actually sings this. He has an alter ego name. It's like Steve Ruchter or something. He has a website for his music. He writes songs about her. There's one song called sunlight in susan's hair or something he literally writes so many songs about her it's he did this wasn't just a man who had a forbidding crush like he thought he was this man was completely disrespecting her privacy so like i said susan finally convinced josh to move all the way to west valley city utah soon after moving to utah the couple decide it's time to grow their family And in many ways, their relationship shifted when Susan became pregnant with her first baby. I almost said pregnant. Pregnant. Josh started talking down to her at this time. He called her names. He made her feel like shit. She confided in some of her friends that he was treating her poorly, but she believed it would all be better after the baby was born. But (laughs) if your man is treating you like shit while you're pregnant, I can honestly tell you it doesn't get better after you have a baby. Nope. If anything, everything gets more stressful after you've had a baby. It definitely makes it worse. It's, yeah. So take this as a warning sign. If you are seeing red flags, trust them. So he's treating her like shit and she's growing a freaking human. It's hard. It's sweaty. It's moody and craving Reese's peanut butter cups all the time. And in January 2005, Charlie was finally born. But when she was in active labor, ready to leave for the hospital, her dad, Chuck, had to literally yell at Josh to get off his computer and go with them to the hospital. Wow. He was just completely ignoring them. Josh said he'd catch up to them later and was there an hour and a half later in the room. When he did show up, he brought his laptop, of course, and went to sit in the corner of the hospital room to mess around on it. Again, Chuck went to him and told him to be with his wife, who's about to have his child, mind you. But Chuck said he looked frantic. Two years later, in 2007, their second child, Brayden, was born. It was during this time that Josh's controlling demands escalated. Josh would give Susan a list of items on sale in the store she shopped at. He told her she had $100 to feed her family of four and couldn't buy anything that wasn't on the list. He didn't allow her to take the family car to work, but instead made her bike seven miles. She also wasn't allowed to buy socks. She had to knit them herself. But how often do you really need to buy socks that it hurts your budget? I haven't bought socks in like six years. Yeah, I don't. It's, I I need socks, actually. I mean, maybe not six years because Doug. Oh, yeah, our dog gets our socks. Doug forces us to buy socks. Yeah. Maybe we should have a sock budget. It's very not. It's like, it's not that often. No, it's not. 
Also, Josh didn't cook or clean anything in the house. So he has the audacity to make a list for Susan to stick to. And then he goes out and buys his own snacks to eat at home. And he doesn't allow her to eat them. It's like so childish. It's like really controlling. It's obvious that he needs to find something to control. You know what I mean? She's cleaning up after him. She's cooking him meals. She's taking care of his kids. He's like barely has to lift a finger. And he's like, oh, you know what? You can't eat these snacks. Like, you just want to control something. No worries for you. Susan, at some time, at some time, Susan had to call up her friends a couple. Oh, my God. I can't speak. Susan had to call up her friends on a couple of occasions to ask for food to feed her children. That's how bad it was. Like, he had no. he, He completely disregarded the fact that his kids also needed to eat. Yeah. And he wasn't abiding by any sort of budget either. He spent thousands of dollars on computer equipment, hard drives, treadmills, and even had thousands of pounds of wheat in his home. Wheat. Like those, uh, um, what are they called? Disaster preparedness buckets of wheat. All right. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. It's an amount of wheat that nobody needs. Even if he survived an apocalypse and had to regrow wheat for the world again, he still had too much wheat in his house. <laughs> like, it's insane. Yeah, that's so random. It's so random. He just seems he like... like a wheat fetish. He se- Ew. He just seems like the guy that sits on the couch and watches QVC or HSN, just some stupid channel, shopping channels. And just like, you know what? I want that. And just presses a button and yeah. orders it. And then never eat. But they don't sell wheat on those channels. So I don't know where he got that from. It's in the Costco ad. They sell wheat at Costco? Probably. Probably. Maybe in Utah. Maybe in Utah, yeah. Uh, still, too much wheat. Uh, when Josh was home, he was either on his computer or he was watching Forensic Files on TV. He used to watch Forensic Files while Susan was home and would tell her why the murderers were stupid and what mistakes they made that led them to be caught. So he would frequently comment on, oh, if I did that, I wouldn't have left the glove there. Or, oh, that was stupid of them to leave their fingerprint or something. And this is hard for me to comment on because I do too watch Forensic Files. Um... You're listening to this podcast because you are interested in true crime. Mm -hmm. So I can't blame him for being interested in true crime. It's the way he brags about how to get away with it that bothers me. I think anyone who frequently watches slash listens to reads true crime know the common mistakes. Mm -hmm. DNA left behind, you know, by the perpetrator. Yeah. Or witnesses that see Mm -hmm. him. Or, you know, a common MO. Okay, you can link those all together. We know that because we're familiar with certain cases. And sometimes things happen over and over again. And we can't help that we notice that. Yeah. It's the bragging about it. I'm never going to watch Forensic Files and be like, he should have done this. I'm not rooting for the guy. Yeah. I'm not rooting for the murderer. And he was like, oh, he should have done this. And he wouldn't have got away with it. No, no, no. We want him to be caught. We don't want people to do things like this. 
<sighs> Anyways, so she kind of got scared, actually. It, it frightened her, and she would talk to her friends about it and just say, yeah, he's watching Forensic Files a lot, and he keeps talking about how he would murder someone. And he's not the only one that he talked, she talked, he, she's not the only one he talks to about this. He rarely helped Susan with meals or chores, and like his father, he stopped attending church with her. Susan didn't want a divorce, though. Like I said earlier, the Mormon faith says that families need to stay together and work it out, and divorce really isn't an option until things are super bad, which is really unfortunate way to think about that. Yeah. I'm sure in different um, churches, groups, things are a little more strict, less strict. You know, mm-hmm. there's different, but... Um, I don't think, personally, because I care about your well-being, I don't think you should wait until things are super bad. No. Sometimes that's too late. Yeah. I mean, it was. it's too late here. Still, though, she confided in a friend, and that friend urged her to go see a divorce lawyer, which is a huge step for her. So she goes in secret, of course. And the lawyer tells Susan at their first meeting in 2008 that she needed to document her assets. So she films this home video while Josh isn't home. She walks through the house and she's videotaping basically all her belongings. Mm-hmm. All the things that she has that's important. Yeah. All the things that he's bought that's like, you know, thousands of pounds of wheat. <laughs> she's like, I don't know why this dude is buying this shit. This is messed up. He could keep it. Yeah, for real. But basically, it's just so if she said, if something happens to me, Mm -hmm. I don't want him to not be able to split it. And knowing what we know today, watching this video is so chilling. It really makes you cringe because in the beginning, she says, oh, I'm documenting my assets. Mm -hmm. And she says, um you know, I hope we can all live happily ever after or as much as we can. And Mm -hmm. she's like kind of forcing a smile, rolling her eyes. You know, when you're in in an uncomfortable situation and you're trying to make the best of it so you don't have to, you know, give that person your your sadness or something. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, yeah, it's just the way it is. That's how she's talking about this. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, her kids are in the house and she's, you know, she's talking to the camera and she seems scared. Like, but like she's just brushing mm-hmm. it off. She is instructed to keep these videos private from Josh. So she ends up renting a security box at work, like a deposit box in the building she works at. And nobody knows about it except mm-hmm. her. She has like two little keys to open it. She keeps them in her purse. So that's where she keeps the videos and also where she keeps this handwritten note so this note is on a piece of binder paper and it's it's like a note slash will it's mm-hmm. her wishes if something were to happen to her okay and she literally writes on it i do not trust my husband she also writes if something happens to me that looks like an accident it may not be wow she's thought about the possibility enough to write it down Thinking about it is scary enough. When you write it down, you're scared. Yeah, you're like prepared. Yeah. It makes me so sad that she probably runs it, had run it through her head Mm -hmm. for so many days. Totally. About how he might get rid of her. 
and that that's so sad and not only did she fear for her life but she feared for her young boy's life just so scary so things are still rocky at home but josh i'm sorry susan gives josh an ultimatum and that's either to shape up and be a better husband or dad by their anniversary in april or she's divorcing him and taking the kids josh responds to this as over my dead body wow so think about how josh's mom did not get the kids and how steve basically got them all yeah um josh is manipulative just like steve powell mm-hmm. so we're gonna skip ahead to december 6th 2009 josh susan and the boys are home it's a sunday afternoon susan has a friend over her name is Giovanna. susan and Giovanna meet once a month and they hang out and talk and they knit they like to knit together it's actually really sweet because i think Giovanna's is a little bit older mm-hmm. than susan and it's just such a genuine friendship they just bond over knitting yeah. and that just makes my heart so happy the two are talking at the kitchen table. It's in the mid-afternoon. Mid mm. Josh is actually in the kitchen making lunch. He's making pancakes for lunch. He serves Susan a plate of pancakes and cleans up. Shortly after, Susan tells Giovanna she isn't feeling well and she wants to lie down and rest. She said she'd been feeling lousy all week. So she goes to lay down and Giovanna remains in the kitchen to kind of mark her place on her project before leaving. Okay. okay knitting is hard and you don't just want to stop. You want to be able to kind of put your, yeah. you know, Finish up yeah, like, where you're, you? where you're at and then you, mm-hmm. and you can pack it up. But Josh is like rushing her out. Okay. He's like, okay, you need to go by. She's laying down. You need to go. Um, it's 4 PM and he's telling her to basically get out. He's rushing Giovanna out the door because he tells her that he has, she has to go so he can take Brayden and Charlie sledding. So the next morning is a Monday and Sunday night and Monday morning, there's supposed to be a big snowstorm. Um, so I don't really know why he would have taken them out sledding if the weather was going to be bad because yeah. even before a big like blizzard or snowstorm, the weather already sucks. Oh, yeah, totally. So, and this is December in Utah. The next morning, Monday, the boys daycare provider is waiting for them to arrive. Susan normally dropped the boys off at 6.30 a.m., but failed to show up at that time. The daycare provider got worried, so she called Susan and then Josh, but neither of them picked up. A couple hours pass, and she decides to go to the Powell house. When she gets there, she doesn't see any fresh tracks around the house, and the snow had fallen the night before, so she gets worried that they might be inside suffering. Mm -hmm. Her first instinct was that they might be suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. I guess Susan got this new carbon monoxide sensor, alarm, yeah. you know, whatever those are called. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking about how it could be tricky to set it up the right way, I guess. Okay. And that was like a week prior. Hmm. And so that's the first thing that comes to her mind. Maybe they're inside and yeah. that's why they're not answering the door. So she calls Terry, Josh's mom. Josh's mom pulls up with alina josh's sister and they're banging on the door and they're calling josh and they're calling susan they're calling susan's work susan's mm-hmm. not at work um, she failed to show up that morning so of course her co-workers and her boss are also looking for her and it's just not like her to not show up somewhere i mean the girl bikes in like freaking seven miles yeah. to work she's gonna get there so after terry and alina Try banging on the door some more and can't get a hold of Josh or Susan. They call the police. 
The police also get no answer at the door, so they break through one of the front windows windows to enter the house. Upon entering the house, they begin to notice things aren't quite making much sense. No one is home, but Susan's purse and wallet are still in the house. Her her phone is missing, and the family car is missing from the garage. Mm-hmm. Police also notice two large box fans are plugged in and running while no one's home. And they're both pointed at the love seat in the living room from okay. like either side of the love seat. The love seat is damp. Interesting. Yes. Everyone is trying to reach Susan and Josh by now, and they find out Susan failed to show up to work, like I said. And people are frantic because it's just not like her. Yeah. And it's always scary when someone doesn't show up to work and you don't know why. And not to mention, they're also freaking out because these two young boys are missing. Yeah, and I'm sure it's like a small community. Yeah. Knows each other. Everyone knows each other through church and through the neighborhood Mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Finally, after a couple hours, they get a hold of Josh and they ask him where Susan is since she's not at work. And he says, oh, she's probably just at work. They just told him that she's not at work. And he's like, oh, she's probably just at work. So they're like, okay, dude, just come home. Yeah. Josh said, oh, I need to go get the boys something to eat first. And the cops are like, okay, hey, we'll take care of them. Mm-hmm. Just come home so we can try to find your wife. Josh doesn't show up for hours. He actually drives to Susan's work first, parks outside, and calls her. He leaves her a voicemail and says something like, hey, honey, I'm here to pick you up. Just come outside. But he knows she's not at work. Yeah. He knows damn well she's not mm-hmm. at work. Josh comes home finally at 7 p.m., where police have been waiting all day for him. He rolls the window down for an officer to talk to him at the family minivan. So the officer says, hey, Josh, where have you been? Josh said, oh, I just came back from a camping trip. When did you leave for the trip? Oh, last night around midnight. So why'd you leave at midnight? Oh, the boys wanted s'mores. Okay. Yeah, that... To me, that's a shitty explanation. Okay. So we'll get into more of the questions and answers at his formal interview. But then they ask him, why was your phone off for most of the day? And his response was that he was trying to conserve his battery because he didn't bring a charger with him. The officer looks at the middle console and there's a freaking car charger plugged in. Pick some better excuses dude like come on so instead of addressing it he's just like all right man just come to the station real quick bring the boys i just want to ask you a few questions about susan so we could you know learn some more about her they don't know anything about this woman other than what they've heard from family Mm -hmm. obviously he's someone who's going to know her the best and they want to talk to him makes perfect sense so him and Brayden and Charlie go to the station. They sit in a smallish room, and this was his first informal interview. It wasn't mm-hmm. planned. Um, they ask him the basic questions, okay? One being, why did he take the boys camping at midnight in December when a snowstorm was coming? They wanted to make s'mores. Okay, I want to make s'mores all the time, but I'm not going to go out in the no, middle of winter. Also, if your boys are three and five, you're going to be like, yeah, let's do whatever you want. No, no, no. That's not how parenting works. No. And where is the common sense there? I feel like at the very least, like, just like a fire in your backyard. Just and freaking fucking... melt them over the stove. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. So, 
a storm, like I said, was heading their way that night. There's no way, even without the storm, Susan would have let him take the boys camping at midnight. So they're like, all right, okay, dude, where'd you go camping? He said he went to Simpson Springs, which is about 90 miles away. So at midnight, he wakes his kids up who were sleeping. Or he says, at midnight, he loads the car up. Those are his words. I loaded the car up. I went and got the boys and we left. So he drove for 90 minutes. He would have gotten there around 1.30 in the morning. And then he somehow came back into town way before seven because like i said he went to the work he went to her work first it just doesn't make any sense no so then they ask well what was susan doing last when you saw her and he said oh she was sleeping she didn't feel good she went to lie down after lunch the cops of course don't really understand the whole camping story so they want to do a quick once over on Josh's car. Not like a formal forensic analysis, but just to see if there were any camping equipment mm-hmm. in there. And there was. It was consistent with his story. There were things like gloves for the snow. There were s'mores utensils to corroborate his s'mores story. Um, and other camping essentials like a tarp. Um, I know that sounds really sketchy, but the picture of the items yeah. was not sketchy. It was very much like Walmart aisle camping. Mm-hmm. A lot of things were packaged still, though. Like, never been used. Okay, keep that in mind. So, his story checked out, kind of. Not really, but the camping stuff checked out. So, he went home, and they scheduled a formal interview without the boys, just just with Josh, the following day, and Josh agreed. So, the next day, he's home alone with the boys, and his mom and sister show up. And what is he doing? He's cleaning out the family car. And he's cleaning inside of the house. Keep in mind, Forensic has not looked at any of this yet. Great. Josh, the man who never cleans shit, is cleaning his house in the car before it's formally searched. His sister is like, why aren't you at the interview yet? You need to go help find Susan. This is serious, Josh. And he brushes it off. He arrives at the interview four hours late. Four hours. I can't even believe they were still waiting for him. Like, obviously he was... This is suspicious enough to be like, yeah, we're waiting four hours. So he's in the interview and he's really quiet now. Josh, which is who's normally really chatty, wants to tell Mm -hmm. you his whole life story, even though he knows you don't care, wants to tell you everything, is not really giving them much. He basically replies to every question with an I don't know, or he just doesn't reply at all and police can't get anything out of him. Little did he know, though, that five-year-old Charlie and three-year-old Brayden were nearby with a counselor. This child counselor was trained to talk with kids who had potentially been exposed to a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So she asks them about their family and, you know, they're really little. So they don't quite understand the whole world yeah. yet and what's what's right and what's wrong like we do. That's what they're learning in, as children. But Charlie in particular, the oldest, is pretty talkative. So she asks him, who went on your camping trip? And he says, my mom my dad and my little brother so she says oh your mom went and he says yes my mom went it's interesting because josh's story was that susan stayed home to rest right so she asks him later who came home from the trip and he says his mom stayed she did not come home he said mommy stayed she says your mom stayed where and his response was where the pretty crystals are that's 
freaky. Yeah. What does that mean? Okay. A little while later, she asks Charlie to draw a picture of the family in the car. He draws Josh driving him and Brayden in the car and points to the trunk of the car and says, that's mommy. Yeah, that's creepy. This little boy's not lying. No. When I, when I, that was harder to say than it was to type out, obviously. That's, this is like, this is not just some scary story. Like this is real. Like this really freaking happened. And the thought that this kid understands that much, even if he doesn't understand what happened fully, but he understands that much. Oh my God. It just gives me, it just makes, it makes my stomach like not up really bothers me. And, um, obviously the counselors are like, okay, we got some red flags here. So they report back to detectives and detectives at this point still can't get Josh to crack. So they tell him that his kids basically ratted him out and that they told counselors that Susan was with them and that they left them there, left her there. He's pissed, says, oh, they're lying. They say, do they, are they lying kids? Do they lie? He says, oh, they lie sometimes. Can I leave? The detective is like, dude, we're just trying to figure this out. But I mean, yeah, we can't legally keep you here against your will. Josh says, okay, I want to go home. And they're like, wait, what? He says, yeah, I want to go home and think about it for a couple days. What is there to think about besides you're a freaking idiot? The cop is like, he literally says, your wife is missing Josh and you want to think about it for a couple of days? Josh is like, yeah, you guys are asking me too many questions. I don't know what else you want from me, pretty much. The cop says, fine, but you can't go home because we have a search warrant and they're confiscating things from your house right now, which is really smart of them to do during the interview. Yeah. Although I really wish that he didn't clean his house. I should have done this before. Um, so I think he went to like a relative's house. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't clear where he went that night, but during the search of his house, they confiscate tons of electronic material from his hard drives. He has so many hard drives yeah. and so many like computers themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just so much shit in his house. They didn't, I don't know. Maybe they confiscated the wheat, but <laughs> I have no idea. Um, during the search, they interestingly enough find small blood droplets on the floor next to the wet couch the fans were blowing on Mm. days earlier. Detectives said the droplets were so small it was as if someone had sneezed. Mm. Police are trying to build a solid case against Josh at this point. They name him a person of interest but have no hard evidence, so in the meantime, he just dips. He packs up the boys and goes to live with his dad in Washington without telling anyone else. Susan had been missing for nine days at this point. He wow. just leaves. It, it's like, do you not realize how suspicious you look? Right. If you wanted to look like the innocent guy, what? I mean, yeah, we've seen it in like other cases where like even if the husband did do something, like they're out there like searching. And, like, yeah, Chris least, like, Watts is the first like thing that comes to my yeah, mind. Same. He did a freaking tv interview like oh my god that man gives me the chills story's really fucked up too so he just leaves he goes to live with his beloved father (sighs) so for months josh evades the media he doesn't want to do any interviews but eventually he gets fed up and does one tv interview where he trashes susan he says that people don't understand but she had an emotional childhood 
He said her mother was angry and her father was manipulative and that she was emotionally abused by them. This was far from her parents' truth, but honestly, I think it was so easy for him to do this TV appearance and stay calm because he wasn't entirely lying. Mm -hmm. Susan was emotionally abused in her life, except it was by Josh and not her parents. Later in the interview, he called her promiscuous and rebellious and suggested she ran off with another man. Mm. How disrespectful to her family and her friends. This was crazy to them, obviously. By this point, friends and family were shocked and disgusted with Josh's behavior, and people that knew the couple were actually starting to wonder if Josh was responsible for Susan's disappearance, but they hadn't seen the worst yet. Josh and Steve, in an attempt to you know, get the media off their backs, mm-hmm. create a an awareness website for Susan called susanpowell.org. On the surface, it looks like they're doing good work and yeah. raising awareness for Susan, but actually they're just posting their own BS theories to clear their family name. One theory is that she ran off with another Salt Lake City man by the name of Stephen Kosher. Kosher disappeared around the same time as as Susan did, so their theory was that the two ran off to Brazil, specifically, to start a new life together. It's just such a bad... Th- I don't know how people even would believe this, mm-hmm. other than... I mean, I don't even want to say Steve and Josh believe it, because I, I believe they know what happened, so they oh, don't believe yeah. it. They just are... Just to make her seem like she would leave her kids and mm-hmm. run off with another random man, and... You know, authorities are going to check every lead, even if it's ridiculous. And they checked this connection. There's absolutely nothing that connects these two people other than the fact that they are both missing. Yeah. Okay. Which is tragic. Steve Powell continued to defend Josh ruthlessly during this time. And cops decide, you know what? We want to look into Steve. So they devise this plan, a setup really, with Susan's dad, Chuck. To do a honk and wave type thing where supporters would stand out, I think in front of like a Costco Mm -hmm. they went to, um, that was in Steve Powell's neighborhood, okay? They would hold signs with Susan's face, with messages like, remember me, trying to push, you know, push her presence out there so people would see her face and try to help solve what happened to her. And then when they saw the sign, they'd honk and they'd wave, you know. Mm -hmm. But the real reason they were out there was to piss Steve off. Because they knew Steve was a talker. He was an idiot. He was a narcissist. So a narcissist is going to insert himself to, you know, get people off his back. But he's also probably going to spill the beans on something he didn't mean to. So, and that's exactly what he did. So they were literally so smart to do this. So Josh had actually filed a restraining order against chuck cox before this um but the restraining order was not the typical uh distance type restraining order like it wasn't like you must be 100 feet away Mm -hmm. or remain this far away from him it was more of a you may not approach him and talk to him that's a freaking easy one i mean maybe not to him because chuck cox probably wants to kill josh with his bare hands but um he could be in this neighborhood that Josh lived in. It wasn't against the restraining order. So they're outside. Steve pulls up and he gets out. There's a bunch of reporters there. They're live. They're mm-hmm. on TV. Steve starts arguing with Chuck. What are you doing here to help Susan? You're not doing it here to help Susan. They, they get into this argument for like 10 minutes mm-hmm. on camera. It's so annoying. Like, shut up. Um, 
not Chuck, you know, Chuck's just trying to gain awareness for his daughter, but Steve starts bragging um, over and over again about how he can prove that Susan just ran off mm -hmm. and just left her family. Um, and he can prove all of this supposedly because she wrote about her emotional abuse from Chuck in her journals and he has all of her journals. And he also has Josh's journals in which Josh also talked crap about Chuck and their relationship between uh -huh. Chuck and Susan, apparently. Um, so before I get into the next part, I just want to say something. Susan was 19 when she met Josh and married him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we were 19 when we got married. So we remember what that was like. God, it was so long ago. <laughs> we're so old. Not really. Um, but think about, I mean, you didn't have a journal as a, as a teenager, Ever. But, okay, <laughs> if you read my journals, if I was ever consistent with them, but if you read them when I was a teenager, yeah. they would be like, oh my gosh, my mom hates me, blah, 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 which, you know, it's, it's, typical. if I read that today, I'd be like, sorry, mom, like, love you so much, like, yeah. I don't deserve you, but, yeah, so I think that because she was so close to being it was it wasn't that far away from when she was a teenager maybe she was angsty i didn't get that from here but i did get that she was independent so maybe she kind of challenged her parents beliefs oh, I'm sure. um I mean, yeah totally it's a teenage it's the same thing like with my parents it's a teenage thing like to do pretty independent so even like just getting in arguments about stupid yeah things, and then you think that like the world's gonna end and you hate your parents totally it's just a rite of passage you gotta like you know fake hate your parents once and then you get over it Except for Presley. Except for Pre She's never going to hate us. <laughs> Cut to 14 years from now. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, anyways, so he... Steven, Steve says, oh yeah, we have all this proof in her journals. And he mentions these journals like three times in this one day on these cameras. Mm -hmm. So police are like, alright, let's take a look at those journals then, Steve. Great idea. <laughs> So they obtain a search warrant in August and they go to Steve's house. They go in for journals, but they leave with so much more. Police learn Steve's greatest problem and greatest joy, his obsession with his daughter-in-law. They recover hundreds and hundreds of pages of Steve's journals all about Susan, his fantasies. Blech. In his closet, they hit the creepiest mother load of all. Tons of Ziploc bags full of Susan's items she left when she lived with him. What kind of items, you might ask? How about tissues she used? Cotton pads with old nail polish on them. Used tampons and other feminine hygiene oh, products. No. Toenail clippings. What? And dirty panties from Susan's hamper. Also, again, panties is the worst Dirty word knickers. ever. Dirty knickers. I gotta cut that. That sounds bad. Thousands of footage and photos of Susan. Some... This is not funny. Okay. Thousands of footage, video footage, and photos of Susan. Some were even, like, porn with Susan's face photoshopped on them. The That's how far he went to fantasize to satisfy himself like i don't know i mean that's i do know that's exactly that's really what he did uh, steve had also 
oh, sorry. In addition to these awful pictures of Susan, they also recovered photos Steve had taken of the 10-year-old girls next door using their bathroom, taking baths, etc. This, of course, got him arrested for voyeurism and child porn for 30 months. That's all he did. Yeah, that's crazy. was 30 months. And these are only pictures they recovered. This man was probably in his 50s or 60s by this mm -hmm. time. That wasn't his first time doing no. that. <sighs> so as soon as Josh is named a person of interest, the phone lines blow up. You know, everyone's got a tip to share about this yeah. one time they talked to Josh. But one man calls and tells them that he had an experience with Josh at a Christmas party in 2008. He had an experience at a Christmas party with Josh one year prior to Susan's disappearance. Josh starts this random conversation with this guy, Scott, about how he'd want to hide a body down a mine shaft because they're so unstable mm -hmm. if he was trying to get rid of one. Okay, first of all, you don't just start up a conversation no. like that with a stranger. That's just an absolute no-no. Yeah. Um, but this was obviously memorable enough to call in and tell them that. So a huge search campaign in 2010 led to a vast search of abandoned mines in the Utah desert. The Utah desert is ginormous, so there's it's no like way the they could see all of that. Basically. Not to mention that there are thousands and thousands of abandoned mine shafts out there. Yeah. And mine shafts are dangerous to enter, mm -hmm. if you don't know. I don't even know all about them, but I know they're dangerous to enter. So they check out as many yeah, as they can. Oh, totally. They're abandoned for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. So they check out as many as they can during this search. And eventually they stumbled into one far enough to smell gasoline. Weird. Weird, right? Okay, you'll come to learn that Josh likes to use gasoline, okay? Um, obviously they can't proceed into the mine because the fumes yeah. plus the sketchy stuff in the mine, they can't get they can't get in there, so the search becomes inconclusive, which is really unfortunate. While searching Susan's workplace, they end up finding her secret deposit box, which contains oh, the yeah. video of the assets she recorded for her divorce lawyer and the written note about not trusting Josh. This was the biggest piece of circumstantial evidence so far that police had. She's literally speaking from the grave at this yeah, point saying, hi, my husband did it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good job, Susan. I'm... I'm thinking of you, girl. I'm so sorry for you, but you did a good job protecting yourself. Yeah. You know, speaking up for yourself, at least. You did a really good job. Now, you remember me saying they confiscated tons of hard drives from Josh's computer, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he had a lot of security on these drives. So I think Josh actually worked in some IT type job. He had a lot of. I was going to ask you earlier when he was. When they were, like, yeah. talking about buying a bunch of computers. So, like I can't remember what his exact title was. And it wasn't for all that long. Because I mm -hmm. think for a minute there, he was unemployed. Um, while, you know, making an insane yeah. budget for Susan and yeah. being an asshole. He was also unemployed and just watching forensic files all day. Anyways, at some point, I think he had an IT type job. I don't know if he did coding or, um, you know, servering, server work or something like that. Happened. But he had knowledge on how to encrypt these hard drives. Yeah. These hard drives took years for forensic anal analysts to crack. Years. Mm -hmm. 
these people who are trained on it were like, I can't get in. Like, there's nothing I could do. But they didn't give up. They kept working on it. And eventually, they did get into some of the hard drives. And they were able to see the search history um, leading up to the disappearance of Susan. And one of the searches was for Topaz Mountain. Topaz Mountain was only like 30 miles from the camping site Josh allegedly took the boys to that night. Mm -hmm. So really... You're already driving 90 miles. Like, what's another 30? And it's the middle of the night. No one knows where you are. No one can track your stupid phones off. Um, Also, want to mention that when they did the search of Josh's car, even though he cleaned it out, he forgot to take Susan's phone out of the middle console. So this idiot, he forgets to take the phone out. Remember when he called her work? Yeah. And he knew, like... The, this everything he tries to do makes it so much creepier mm-hmm. because he uh I just he's trying to cover his tracks when he just it's, sucks at it. It's it's almost like he's made up a few plans in his head, which I think is the worst part because yeah. he's planned this out a couple times and he keeps changing it and then coming back. So he forgets her phone. And um police are like, Yeah, Josh, um why are you leaving voicemails if you know you had her phone? And he's like, Oh, I forgot I had it. Yeah, okay. Whatever. I don't believe you. Yeah. So, after discovering this search for Topaz Mountain, they obviously want to go check it out. Another massive search is done on the mountain using ATVs, horses, and tons of cadaver dogs. And tons of people are out there searching for Susan's remains. Dogs actually end up hitting, finally, at the bottom of this mountain after a couple hours. Search party described the site that they hit almost like a shallow grave. It was about two and a half feet deep. Okay. There was nothing in this area except for charred wood pieces. So mm-hmm. Something was burned here. They sent the wood pieces off to DNA testing to see if it matched Susan's, but the test was inconclusive. But it wasn't negative. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't clear enough to determine it was Susan's, mm-hmm. which I think is important to know. Yeah, there's something there. Also, I'm... Almost positive they found gasoline at this site. Probably. That's not me guessing. Like, I'm almost positive they did. So they were like, oh, gasoline? Okay, great. One afternoon, a man calls a satellite imaging company about buying the rights to a certain photo taken over this junkyard. Mm. Okay, so there's this company. They have, I don't know. Obviously, a satellite takes pictures above businesses, and then they sell the pictures to help businesses add to their yeah. portfolio, their mm-hmm. websites, whatever the hell they want to do with it. Um, and as soon as they sell it, it's no longer their photo, right? So they can get rid of it. They send mm-hmm. it to you. So this guy's like, hey, you have a photo over this junkyard. Um, I want to see if my car's still there. Haha, ha, this funny story. They're like, yeah, man, what's your name? Oh, my name's Michael Powell. Michael is Josh's brother. Yeah. So the man on the phone recognizes the last name Powell, and he calls the police. Good job, dude. Obviously, the police want to bring Michael in. So the backstory is Michael had sold his car for parts, but his car was in good condition at the time. But he sold this car at the time of Susan's disappearance. Same time. There's no way this is a coincidence. He wanted to make sure this car, with no issues was destroyed. He was just like, yep, here, take my car, done, take it to the salvage yard, make sure it gets destroyed, thanks, bye. There was nothing wrong with this car. It was only a few years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I'll get to this theory in a second. So this was a couple years prior that he got rid of this car and still the car is in one piece. So the police call Michael in for an interview. They're asking him a few warm up questions. How'd you know, Susan? What do you know about Josh? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he has given them, you know, all the answers that are good to him. And yeah. then they tell him, yeah, Adam, we have your car. And then he starts sweating and he like shuts up, doesn't give them anything else. Stops talking. He believed this car was destroyed years ago and he probably thought his worries were over. But yeah. Cadaver dogs during the forensic analysis ended up hitting on the trunk of this car. The trunk's carpet was sent for DNA testing because there was DNA composition found on this mm-hmm. carpet. But the DNA did not match Susan's. So then this new theory is forming, and that's this. Susan tells Josh she'll divorce him if things don't get better. But he doesn't want her to divorce him or take the kids away from him, so he wants to get rid of her. He kills her at their house, loads up the car, wakes the boys up, and drives them out to Topaz Mountain. Later on, he calls Michael to move her body to a more remote location because now the police are looking into him. Michael moves Susan, and on the way home, he junks his car to get he junks his car to get rid of the evidence and gets a ride back home into town. Still, DNA testing has been inconclusive, and now Chuck and Judy are worried for the boys' safety in Josh's home. I want to reread that. That was so choppy. Okay. So there's a theory that's. Okay. okay, so this theory forms with friends and family and even investigators. Um, it's hard to believe fully if the DNA in the car didn't match Susan's, but I'll just tell you what the people think. So lots of people think it goes like this. Susan tells Josh she's going to divorce him if things don't get better, but he doesn't want that and he doesn't want her to take the kids, so he gets rid of her. He kills her at their house. Loads her up in the car, wakes the boys up, and drives them out to Topaz Mountain. Later on, on his way back, he calls Michael to move her body to a more remote location because now the police are looking into him. So Michael moves Susan, and on the way home, he junks his car, his perfectly good car, and gets a ride back into town from someone else. I don't know. I... I'm an, I'm an ask you later. Okay. Because there's still more to get. There's still more to get to. Still, at this point, DNA testing has been inconclusive. And now Chuck and Judy are obviously worried for the boys' safety in Josh's home. He's a person of interest and he's had his boys this whole freaking time. I don't know why they allowed this to happen. So, Chuck and Judy fight to get temporary custody until Josh goes to trial for primary custody. But the judge ends up denying him full custody since he's a suspect in a murder case. I mean, thank God. Yeah. Um... The lawyers and prosecutors for the state of Washington, because that's where he lived at the time, mm-hmm. actually argued against giving the kids back to Josh um, because he was the suspect. And the judge was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. So, but she doesn't fully deny him. She just says, um, you need to take a psychosexual test. And if you pass, you can get supervised visitation with the boys, but you can't have primary custody at this time. But if things start to get better, we can work up to something like that. Mm-hmm. So why does Josh need a psychosexual test? 
Well, because on those hard drives, they recovered tons of porn. Like, child porn. Except it was, like, animated or drawn or both. That's super weird. It's it's bad enough to me. Yeah. It's bad enough. I get that exploitation of the children in the photos is is what people go to jail for but it is bad enough to have it yeah how do you not how do you know that isn't someone's kid in a drawing totally i don't know why it's so different so he can't be arrested for that but you know authorities are alarmed because this apparently was easily accessible all over the house Mm -hmm. and they're worried that the children were exposed to it Mm -hmm. and they're they're cartoons and so it wouldn't be as confusing for a kid to see yeah because they would be used to seeing cartoons Mm -hmm. and then so they don't know if charlie or Braden were ever exposed to that josh when he hears the decision from the judge is devastated he actually starts arguing and like wails at the judge after she denies him custody he's pissed because things aren't going his way which is not a good combo for josh no Shortly after, he takes this psychosexual test, and it's unclear what his score was or if he passed, but because he aced the polygraph when they questioned him about Susan, I'm almost positive he probably passed the test. Yeah. If I had to guess. I mean, some people who have that ability just know how to play play those tests, you know what I mean, to get the result that they want. Totally. So Josh is still granted a supervised visit with his boys where a social worker would be present this whole time. The first visit was scheduled for February 5th, 2012. That morning, the caseworker picked up the boys from Chuck and Judy's house and brought them to Josh's new rental home in Graham, Washington. When they pull up, he's on the porch and the boys jump out of the car after they unfasten their seatbelts and run toward their dad right ahead of the social worker. Josh holds the door open for the boys to enter, and as soon as they're inside, he smirks at the social worker and shuts the door on her before she makes it in in time, whisking the smell of gasoline in her face. He locks himself inside the house with the boys. She starts pounding on the door. She's confused, obviously. What the hell are you doing? She can hear him say, Charlie, I have a surprise for you, followed by one of the boys crying. So she's frantically calling 911. This part of the story is very frustrating. I've heard this before, but when I re-listened to it today to make sure I had it to play for you guys, I was frantically chewing on my nails. It made me so anxious to listen to this 911 call because instead of getting help, the operator literally argues with her for like seven minutes. This whole, I honestly believe this whole entire ordeal could have been avoided if there was prompt action when uh-huh. she called 911. I'm going to play it for you. Oh, I'm so sorry. This is going to be so hard to listen to. I'm going to play it for you. I just want you to get an idea of how this operator treats the situation. Okay. Hey, I'm on a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit. And something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I I think it's 89th. 
Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can if I can find it. I'm this nothing like this has ever happened before at um, these visitations. So I'm really um, shocked, and I could hear one of the kids crying. But he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one. Oh, just a minute. I have it here. You can't find me by GPS. No. Okay, it is. Um, me out so much. Yeah. But I think I need help right away. He, he's on a very short lease with CSHS and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. It's 8119 189th Street, Court East, 2 Alice, 98375. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you... Smell, he, he won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? the kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. <laughs> Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't... No, I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am. Uh, and the visit is who? with Josh Powell. And who supervises? And he's the husband that I supervise. So you supervise and you're doing the visit? Yeah, you I supervise, supervise yourself? I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. I do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay. Well, aren't you the one make? Aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another parent the one, that you're supervising? No. There's. I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Okay. So you're supposed to be there to supervise Josh Powell's visit with the children. Yes, that's correct. And, how did and he's the husband of missing Susan Powell. How did he, how, this is a high-profile case? How did he? How did he gain access to the children before you got he there? Gra they, I was one step in back of them. Okay, so they he went into the, the house and then he locked you out. Yes, he, okay. he shut the door right in my face. All right, now it's clear. Your last name? My name is Elizabeth Griffin Hall. Hall is hyphenated? Yes. And what's your phone number, Elizabeth? Um, this, this cell phone number is 360-990-9955. And what agency are you with? Foster Care Resource Network. And the kids have been in there by now approximately um, 10 minutes. And he knows this is a supervised visit. Two, Braden, 
is uh, five and Charlie is seven. so mad first of all it doesn't matter at this time what color car she's in what her license plate number is what her first or last name is that part doesn't matter it doesn't matter if there's two l's at the back of his name it matters that he got help for them right there that call was seven minutes long do you know what the average response time is for emergency services it's pretty much like five to fifteen minutes half of that time could have been them in route to them and him saying oh i'm sorry they need to get to emergency services first to completely disregard everything she just said to have the audacity to say to her ma'am you need to listen to my questions well you need to listen to her freaking answers because she's honestly elizabeth griffin hall that lady is an is such a saint she was so nice to Mm -hmm. that man i would have been losing my mind replying to him i almost think i would have just hung up on him and redialed 911 to get someone else to be like send someone here like so what you don't hear and what i'm not going to play because it's extremely emotional and i don't want to do that to you or myself right now is that there is a second call Basically, right after this call, seconds later, that house exploded in flames with Josh, seven-year-old Charlie, and five-year-old Brayden inside. This was murder-suicide everyone must have seen coming, and yet these boys weren't protected. Why? Why weren't they protected? So, this second call, if you want to listen to it, it's on YouTube. It's 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 a lot. If you know what happens, it's a lot. I really don't recommend it. But 
Second call is Elizabeth Griffin Hall calling 911 again after the explosion. And she's like, this house is in flames and these these babies are inside. You need to come help them. By the time the fire department was able to put the flames out, because there were so many fumes in this house. Mm. It took them a long time. Obviously, it's not just like water and it's done. It yeah. takes them a lot of work to put this out. Everything was charred. They were, however, able to locate the bodies of Josh, Charlie, and Brayden. And Josh had probably knocked the boys out unconscious before they died of smoke inhalation the boys were found holding hands which is so devastating Mm -hmm. and they both had blows to the back of their neck and head with an a hatchet so josh had used a hatchet on his boys to knock them out and then they later died from smoke inhalation from the explosion josh was sitting on a tank of gasoline After he knocked the boys out, he allegedly doused them in gasoline and everything else in the house for Mm -hmm. a second time in gasoline before he lit the place on fire. This was completely premeditated. Oh, yeah. Immediately after this court hearing, he he planned this. There's uh, footage in the bank of of him um, withdrawing his $7,000 in his bank account. He set up instructions for his utility utility instructions for his sister alina to follow which doesn't make any sense to me because you're gonna blow up a rental house how does that even fall on you i don't i feel like there's way more to that um don't know why that matters but um about an hour before the boys got there and this all went down um he had called his sister and said goodbye and left a voicemail now she heard this voicemail almost right after he left it Mm -hmm. and uh was like he he said goodbye i said he said this is too much for me because it's all about him right this is too much for me i can't live without my boys i just want to say goodbye i can't live without my boys i'm sorry for the pain that i've caused and he hangs up so his sister hears this and freaks out and calls the cops and so they're also responding to this and honestly they might have responded to that faster than the other stupid guy did um I've heard that that 911 operator was obviously reprimanded for his uh, service on that call. And he supposedly, um, this was a while ago, this was in 2012, but he kept his job. He wasn't fired for that experience. Um, He was sent to more training and he has said that he handles cases differently in the future, which is all I can honestly hope for because that was a shit show. Um, extremely sad, extremely sad. Um, I believe the only people that truly know the truth about what happened to Susan were Josh, Charlie, Michael Powell, and Steve Powell. The authorities quickly turned to Michael after the death of Josh. And only days later, Michael jumped to his death from the seventh floor of a parking garage. Steve passed away from a heart attack in his halfway house after being released from prison. Everyone's dead. I often think with unsolved cases, someone knows something and they come forward with info as time passes. Some cases are unsolved 
uh, for years and then eventually end up solved after decades because people feel more comfortable offering up information when crimes aren't quite as recent. But in this case, I truly don't think anyone living knows the details that Josh and his father did. I really don't. Steve's journal says, Josh did a stupid thing. This was dated right after mm-hmm. Susan went disappearing, went missing, suggesting uh, he knew about it and helped him cover for it. He definitely knew. Totally. It's such an incredible tragedy. Josh took three beautiful, innocent souls from this world. Susan, Charlie, and Brayden did not ask for this fate. They asked for a faithful father and husband. They asked for love and security, and instead they got Josh Powell. If hell does indeed exist, I hope he's burning in it now. This case truly turns my stomach to knots, and I think of all the things that could have been done differently to save these boys and to find Susan. If there's anything to take away from the story, it's to seek help if you feel unsafe in your relationship. The simple fact that Susan even wrote down that she didn't trust her husband and that she feared for her life around him made a huge difference in this case, in my opinion. I hope more than anything her soul is at peace and that her parents get to lay her to rest one day. I just don't see a scenario where Josh isn't responsible for this. I don't either. Regardless of how it went down, I don't think anyone actually believes that he didn't do this. It's... The only thing that held them back from prosecuting him was the fact that there was no body and just heaping amount of circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly hard to prosecute. There are only, I mean, there's so many cases where they can't prosecute someone because they don't have a body. Um, But there's also a few that have successfully, you know, been prosecuted without a body. And I... I think that they've been done in more recent years. Yeah. I'm incredibly sorry for bumming you out. That was a very sad story. I feel like I'm gonna have trouble sleeping tonight because I just, I just, I just revisited that. But, um, I hope you learned something. I don't want to say I hope you enjoyed it. That was not enjoyable at all. Um, but thank you for letting us tell you this story today and telling you all the stories so far i think this is episode six so we've enjoyed being here for six episodes thank you so much for tagging along i think we're getting better as we go i say this all the time but hopefully (laughs) give us some feedback if you can you can find us on instagram at it gets worse pod pod you could email us stories or questions or suggestions for new cases at it gets worse contact at gmail.com um and i just want to give a quick shout out to our patreons uh if you don't know what patreon is it's a way that you can support us and our free content that we provide you that we love to provide you but they take hours to research and record and edit yeah. and post and then re-edit for you it is 12 20 a.m right we're and doing this because we enjoy it. We enjoy it. However, we also enjoy support. And totally. if you want to support us on Patreon, you can get insider access to new episodes before anyone else. You could get updates on cases and sneak peeks at future episodes. We take your suggestions, if you're a Patreon, before any other you know, regular Joe's suggestions. So that's another perk. You get like first priority in the suggestion box. 
Anyways, we just want to thank our Patreons that we have right now. I think we have five, and you guys are the bomb. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you would like to contribute to this channel, please visit us at www.patreon.com slash it gets worse. And you can support us there. And all of your contributions make episodes like this possible. Thank you so much. Do you have anything else to add? No, I don't think so. Thank you for listening for an hour and a half. We <laughs> totally appreciate you. Yeah. I know the last couple of episodes have been super long. They've Thank been you for long They've been long. like real meaty though. We've yeah. really gotten some good info out to you guys. I've gotten some feedback. Lots of people liked the Bermuda Triangle episode cool. and the uh unsolved disappearances in the wilderness episode that one was my favorite so far actually that one was you know it's got all the things so go listen to that one if you haven't already maybe a little biased about the bermuda triangle that one was was good anthony's first episode solo and he did a good job so listen to them just listen to them all okay anyways we'll see you guys next time yep remember to be kind take no shit take no shit bye guys see ya